We are in our series, What We Believe. We're talking about Grace Church, what we believe as a church, looking through our doctrinal statement, and today we are in God the Son. So we're going to start with a, a little picture here. First of all, backstory to the picture, kind of an interesting picture. Um, the painter of the picture, his name is Caravaggio. Uh, this picture is called Christ in the Manger. Um, it was painted in Sicily in 1609, and Caravaggio was kind of a uh, not admirable character, um, among other things. Um, and and he, he was running away from people who, who wanted to get him because of crimes that he had committed. Um, and interestingly enough, this painting... Uh, has fallen victim to people who are like Caravaggio. Uh, in that, in the year 1960, it was stolen by the Italian mafia. And it was a professional job. It's a very large painting, probably about the size of the screen on height, um, and then, you know, width. And, and, and to steal a piece of artwork like that, you can do kind of a hodgepodge job where you just come in with a razor blade and, and cut out the good part of the picture and run away with it, or you can, uh, if you're a little more professional, you take your time and you get it out nice and pristine. Obviously, it's worth more money that way. Um, it has never been found, and word has it that either it is still in existence somewhere or one of the uh, mafia members has made a comment that it was stored in a barn and eaten by pigs. And is, is now gone. So there's, they have two different testimonies. One says that it, one guy confessed that it's still out there, and another guy confessed that it was eaten by pigs. And they said, in the article I'm reading, they're like, and since they're both from the mafia, we really can't believe anything they say. <laughs> so we have no idea where it is. So here's the question. What do, we, what do we see being communicated in this depiction of the birth of Jesus? What's happening here? Observations. What do you see? What's going on? Yeah. I see an angel. Yeah, I see an angel, okay. And what's the angel kind of, there we go, that's probably good. It's so dark. What's he pointing us to? What's he gesturing about? What's, what's communicated there? Jesus. He's pointing at Jesus, yeah, one hand. And? Pointing at God in the other hand. Why do you think he's doing that? Yes, okay, so he's telling us something, right? right? Here's Jesus, either come from God or he is God or, or both is what scripture teaches us. Okay, good. Any other things you notice about our picture here? Maybe you've seen other pictures of the nativity and how would this one compare to other pictures of the nativity that you've seen? There's a lot of people and then in a nativity, uh, usually it's just Mary... Uh, Joseph, the baby, and sometimes some animals. Yeah, so this one includes a few more people. He's actually painted a few of the, the saints in there, so it's kind of a, from his perspective of uh, where his religious beliefs were. Well, for the sake of time, I'm going to keep going. One, thing, one of the reasons I chose this one is because Jesus isn't glowing. There's a lot of nativities where you have this like ray of sunshine in the middle of the night coming down and illuminating little baby Jesus who's kind of radiating like Superman come from whatever planet Superman came from, I don't know. Um, 
Yeah, there you go. Um, Jesus looks very much like a normal baby in this picture. And I like that. I think that helps us as we study the doctrine of who Jesus is. So that's just kind of to get us thinking about who is this little baby. We've got an angel doing this move, saying it's God. But then we've got a very humble scenario of a very normal-looking baby, normal-looking people around the baby in a bed of straw there. Um, So how do we put these together in how we understand who Jesus is? Well, as we like to do, we are going to start by jumping into Scripture, right? Because foundation for truth is Scripture, so we want to know what does the Bible say before we get into anything else, all right? So your assignment um, to begin the day is that we are going to be looking at John 1, 1 through 18. It should sound somewhat familiar, considering we studied the Gospel of John this past summer. And the question that I want you to ask are twofold as we read it, okay? Here's our two questions. The first question, what does it tell us about Jesus? I'll give you a hint. When John says the word, he's talking about Jesus, okay? Who is he? What kind of a being is he? And what does it tell us about what Jesus did or does? Okay, so who is he? What does it tell us about him? And what did he do? What did he, what is he going to do in the future? All right, all right so I'm going to give you the next eight minutes to do that. And why don't you do that? Um, here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to draw a line on the board. And on one side, you can put any answer to the first question. And on the right side, you can put any answer to the second question. So I want you to read it with someone next to you. Let's just do it with two or three people. And then as you have a thought, you can walk up and write it on the board. Got it? Okay. Ready, set, go. Okay. Let's take a look at what we've got. All right? So we have... What do we learn about Jesus? So before we read these, let's just ask this question. How big of a deal is Jesus? Big deal. Really big. How many passages in our Bible talk about Jesus? Okay, so yeah. All right, so yeah, we we would want to say at least a whole lot of them, if not all of them. Some way pointing to Jesus. So... Is our little examination of John 1 going to fill out everything we need? No. No, No, it's not, okay? But John 1, 1 through 18 is one of the densest, most packed passages on who Jesus is, okay? So it at least gets us off on the right direction. Now, as we look at our doctrinal statement, we're going to see that we are referencing passages from all over the New Testament and the Old Testament, okay? Um... So this is just to get us started. So, what do we learn about Jesus and who he is? Okay, he's the light. This is an important image. Um, Light. What does light represent in the Bible? Or in John specifically? Glory. Glory. There is glory associated with light. Yeah. Light. Light. Yeah, I mean, it even says that. The light is the life of men, right? Doesn't it say that in the passage? There's something with light and life. Okay, and, and we're actually going to talk about this in the main service. We're going to hit this. Light is actually more used for holiness, purity, sinlessness. Okay, and he is the light. And, and what's important is Jesus is the light. And we're going to hear in First John that God is the light. God is light. So huh, there's a connection here, which we have here. He is the Word of God. He is the Word. He's God. He's man. All 
He's grace and truth, okay? It tells us that grace and truth came with Jesus. That was an important concept we talked about um, this earlier this summer. Uh, the word, the world was made through him. Yeah. That actually could go over here a little bit more, but like what Jesus did, what Jesus does, thinking about his function. But the world is made through him. That's important. No one has ever seen him until he came, okay? He is from the beginning, okay? So we're talking about from the very, very beginning. He's tied to creation. His own people did not receive him, good, and the one and only Son of God. All right, good. Yeah, all of those are, are helpful. Um, and then we get over here. He became flesh. That's one of the things he did. That is so important. We're going to talk about that. He became flesh. Think about that for a minute. What does that tell us about before he became flesh? We're going with really obvious logical connections here. Before he came, became flesh, he wasn't flesh. I mean, just trying to get the wheels turning, thinking through it. Because our doctrinal statement is so long on this, I didn't even give it to you. Because I felt like it might, you might just be like glazed eyes right away, and I'd lose you as the second I handed you the piece of paper. So we're breaking it up into chunks. Don't worry. We're doing it up here. Stay focused. It's going to be good. So I tried to kind of delineate what questions our statement is answering and what it says. And the first question it seems to be answering is, who is Jesus? And the first thing it's telling us is that Jesus is and always has been God in eternity past. He always is and always has been God in eternity past. So what does that tell us about the creation of Jesus? Was there a creation of Jesus? No. Okay. All right. Not a created being, an eternal being. So the first thing our doctrinal statement says is we teach that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, you guys remember last week when we talked about the Trinity, who's the first person of the Trinity? The Father is the first person, Jesus is the second. He possesses all the divine excellencies, and in these, he is co-equal, co-substantial, and co-eternal with the Father. Okay, so we like to, and by the way, when we use these words, no that we are using words that have been hammered out over hundreds and thousands of years of church history. No, not thousands. Hundreds of years of church history. Wait a minute. Yeah, no, thousands, yes. Sorry. Thousands of years. <laughs> Millenniums of church history. <laughs> so, yeah, we'll just do that. Mm, it was a good brew this morning. Co-equal, okay? So Jesus is co-equal. Co He's equal with the Father. It's not like the Father is here, Jesus is here. Co-equal, co-substantial. They're of the same substance, God, substance. And they are co-eternal. They're both eternal. It wasn't God the Father, and then he got lonely, and he made God the Son. 
okay? Co-eternal with the Father. Um, who is Jesus? All right, I think this is the next thing. Oh, I'm sorry, we're adding on at the bottom. So Jesus is and always has been God. Next one down. Jesus is the agent of creation and the upholder of creation. The agent of creation and the upholder of creation. So we actually see this at, in our passage a little bit. The world was made through him. Who wrote that? Awesome. world was made through him. Yes, the world was made through him. So what does that mean that the world was made through him? Well, here's what our doctrinal statement says. We teach that God the Father created according to his own will through his Son, Jesus Christ, by whom all things continue in existence and in operation. So what does that mean? Okay, that means those two things. It means, first of all, that he is the one through whom all of creation was brought into existence. So we read that in Colossians. It says, by him all things were created, uh, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. So he is the creator, the agent through whom all of the world is created. And he's the one who holds creation together. So what that means is he is the reason that oxygen, two oxygen atoms stick to one hydrogen atom. And we have, no, H2O, two hydrogens, right? One oxygen. Yeah. Ah. The two goes with the H. Science. The reason that those atoms stick together and we have water is because Jesus holds the universe together. He upholds all things. The reason that matter stays matter is because Jesus upholds it. And were he to stop upholding it, it would cease to exist. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is like a master architect who God said, I desire that we create and that people be created in our image. And Jesus was the architect with the plan through whom everything was created. So I want us to start to feel the weight of who this Jesus is, okay? So he's the agent and the upholder of creation. And then, miracle of miracles, Jesus became a human. Which means he has not always been a human. Jesus was purely God. And he decided to take on human flesh. Let me read our doctrinal statement and I'll answer a question. We say, we teach that in the fullness of time, that's a, a, a little phrase that means when God's full plan was all coming together, that he was orchestrating and working and, and he had originally perceived of before the beginning of the world, when that moment came, Jesus, the fullness of time, God the Father sent his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to be conceived by the Holy Spirit, and born of the Virgin Mary. So when all of time that was ticking towards this one moment came, a little fertilized egg showed up in the uterus of a young peasant Jewish girl, and it was God in her womb. That's what we teach. 
and it says this in Scripture, when the fullness of came, uh, time came in Galatians 4, 4, God sent forth his son, born of a woman and born under the law. Okay, now Sam, do you still have your question? going to ask that question right now? <laughs> that is an excellent question. That's an excellent, excellent, excellent question, which we're getting at, okay? We're going to get there, okay? So we have that Jesus became human. He was not always. And, and here, get this. Not only did Jesus become man, he has become man for all eternity, okay? Jesus took on humanity for all of eternity, when, when Revelation describes Jesus, it talks about the lamb who was slain, who sits on the throne. But it talks about there's only one person in heaven who still bears the marks of their time on earth, and it's Jesus Christ who bears the holes in his hands and the holes in his feet and the holes in his side in his person, showing what he did in his time on earth. So he is man forever. And then we move on, that Jesus is both fully God and fully human. So here is a humongous question. What do we do with this? God in eternity past becomes a human. How does that work? Okay, and this is one of the things where we have all sorts of church councils and theologians who are trying to figure this out and put it together. And we have a lot of heresy that comes out of it. Okay, so one of my old professors, he said that doctrine is the daughter of heresy which means heresy is what we get when we're trying to figure it out and we get the wrong answer. And as we keep trying to figure it out and we finally arrive at the right answer, it's only because we went through all those wrong answers that we finally arrived at the right answer, okay? So how do we explain this? Well, here's what our doctrinal statement says. We teach that Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man in indivisible and unconfused oneness, okay? Indivisible, what does indivisible mean? can't be divided, right? What does unconfused oneness mean? It's just, just oneness. There's just one guy, Jesus. Okay, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more. In the incarnation, the eternally existing second person of the Trinity took on, incarnation is the word for when he came down and became man. He took on all the essential characteristics of humanity while surrendering nothing of the divine essence, either in degree or kind. Okay, so let's talk about what that means. Well, first it means, well, first let's look at some heresies. That'll be more fun. Okay, let's start with some heresies, okay? So there is a heresy that you can say Jesus was fully God, but not really a man. So we, one would be docetism. And the way that docetism explains it is it says, God, Jesus is God who came down and looked like a man. Okay? So he didn't want to freak us out in his glory and all that. So he, like, you know, put off that stuff, looked like a man, kind of like an alien coming to visit us who takes, you know, a, a human form so that we can accept them a little bit more um, and teaches us God's ways before going back up to full, shiny godness. That would be heresy. He is not fully God, but not really a man. He really is a man. When scripture says that Jesus came down and took on flesh, it means he really became a human. We also can't say that he was part man, part God. So here's another way of explaining it. Jesus came down 
and he had certain human things about him, but he held on to certain divine things about him, God things about him. So one of them is Apollinarianism, and it says that Jesus had a human body, but God's mind. Okay? And that would make him somewhat man, somewhat God. And that doesn't work either. Another one that doesn't work is that Jesus is fully man, but not really God. And that's what Arianism teaches. Arianism teaches that Jesus really was fully a man that God adopted and said, here is going to be like my main man. Here's a really top of the line, firstborn of creation type of man that you are all going to need to listen to. So what we teach is that Jesus is 100% God and Jesus is 100% man. And if you know percentages, you know that makes no sense, okay? Actually, it does in just different ways I'm not going to explain right now. Um, so what is true of being fully man is true of the person of Jesus, okay? So if you think of everything about you as a human, you as a human going from baby to teenage years, true of Jesus, you in your weaknesses to temptation and to sin and to getting hungry, and getting thirsty, and getting tired, and getting cranky, and getting worn out. All of those things are 100% true of Jesus. And everything that is true of God is true of Jesus as well. So Jesus is still fully God. And he is omniscient. He knows all things, all-powerful. He's able to do all things. Okay? All those other things about God... And this is one of the other um, paradoxes in our faith of how do we do this with Jesus, okay? Mm -hmm. And remember, we, we have these paradoxes because we look at what Scripture teaches us. And here's what Scripture tells us about Jesus, that he was fully man and he was fully God. Now, it might be important to ask the question at this point, why? Why is it so essential that we hold on to Jesus being fully man and fully God? Why is that essential? What did Jesus come to do? just said was totally her heresy, okay? Just so you know. I love it. This is, this is how we get at the right answer, though. So what you just said, let's take one of your thoughts. You just said um, he was God so that he wouldn't sin. And so what that is, that's actually saying he's more God than human, because what we're saying is he came as God, like Superman, hiding, you know, his best underneath his chest, you know, and he's just got normal clothes on. And he, he can't sin because he's God. He's not going to sin, which would mean he's not really human. That's not really what I meant. Oh, well, it's what you said, so here we go. <laughs> I meant if he was fully man, it would have been impossible. I'm not saying, like, he had to bat. I'm I'm saying that he still had to, like, battle to not sin. Yeah. Um, but, like, if he was fully man, it would have been impossible. Because as... Yes. Yeah. No, I mean, if he was not partly God, it would have been this is this is what we need to do. This is exactly how we get at these questions and answers. Sam, 
you are doing awesome. Look at all these other jokers who are just keeping their mouths shut. They're afraid to say anything. Sam, you're a heretic. <laughs> just so you know, that's the takeaway for the day. That's where we're really getting at. Not true. Leave it to an older brother to point that out. Maybe we should let, maybe we should let Elijah take the next crack at it here. No. Sam, you are not a heretic. We're working on getting, getting our minds right here. Um, so here's, here's an example. Sam, you asked the awesome question. How can Jesus as a baby uphold the world? Um, the answer would be because he's God. And that is what he does as God. He continues to uphold the world. I think even a more difficult question to answer would be, how can Jesus as, as God die? Right? Does God, can God die? Yeah, what's, what's going on there? And we have to answer that, that in some human way, the human side of, like, Jesus, Jesus, he died as a human because he had to die as our sacrifice. He had to die in our place. That's why it's so important that Jesus is a human because we have to have a true representative take our place and take our sins, and we can't have some hybrid um, superhero come and die in our place who didn't really fulfill the law who didn't really live a perfect life with all the limitations that we have. They just kind of did it with their superhero clothes on, and it wasn't really that hard for them. Like, you guys remember in The Incredibles uh, at the end when Dash is like on the track team? And they're like, uh, he's looking up at the stands, and he's running, and they're like, slow down, slow down, a little bit faster, slow down, slow down. Like, you know, is that what Jesus' life on earth was like? Like, you know, try to look like it's hard, but it's not really that hard. Try to look like it's hard, but it's not really that hard because I'm God. Right? No, he's really human, okay? but he's also really God, so in a sense, he could never die. Or how about Jesus getting hungry and thirsty? As a human, yes, Jesus gets hungry and thirsty, but does God need anything to sustain him? No. So these two realities are existing in one person, not in some weird mixed-up person. Okay. Okay, so let's keep going to the topic of what did Jesus do? And we're going to put on the uh, gas pedal here as we move quickly. Jesus came, became human to reveal, to redeem, and to rule. Here's what our doctrinal statement says. Jesus Christ is therefore God incarnate, God in the flesh. That's what that means. And the purpose of the incarnation is to reveal God. So, ta-da! Here's what God is like. And, and in the flesh, that's why Jesus is called the Word. So before this... We know what God is like because of what's been written down by the people God has communicated through. Now we have the word made into a human who comes and shows us how to obey the law, how to treat lepers and orphans and uh, widows, how to respond to the religious leaders of the day. God is revealed. He comes to redeem men, buy us back from slavery. Humans is what it means there, humans. And to rule over God's kingdom. He's come to be the king. So how does Jesus accomplish this? Well, we see in our doctrinal statement through three things. First, by living the perfect human life. We teach that Jesus Christ was subject to physical infirmities and temptation as a true human, but lived a perfect and sinless life. So he's in, like, he is a complete human. He's not like Dash in The Incredibles. 
Um, he is fully human, and he lives a perfect life. So in Hebrews we read, we do not have a pr- high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. How would you feel you know, going to Jesus in prayer if you knew that Jesus was really like Dash, and he, he really didn't experience temptation in the same way that you experience temptation? We don't have that. We have a high priest who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet is without sin. So he has sat in the exact same temptations that you have sat in and failed in, and he didn't fail. He stood up under them. So he lived this perfect human life. We teach that he preached and taught with unparalleled authority. So that's how he's revealing God to us. He worked miracles which bore witness to his divine glory, authority, and identity, which heralded the breaking in of the new creation. So he's revealing God and his plan for redemption. He fulfilled the law and all the Old Testament prophetic hopes concerning the coming one. So he is the one that God said was going to come. And we teach that Jesus Christ was tried, that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, and that he died, was buried, and on the third day rose from the dead. We teach that our Lord Jesus Christ accomplished our redemption through the shedding of his blood and sacrificial death on the cross, and that his death was voluntary, voluntary, meaning he did it because he wanted to do it. He wasn't being forced to do it. Vicarious, which means it was for us. It's for someone else. It's not for him. It's not because he had something that he needed to die for. It's substitutionary. It's in our place. We deserve to be on the cross, but instead of us, he's on the cross. It's propitiatory, which means that it is appeasing of the wrath of God so that wrath that God feels towards you in your sin is being satisfied in Jesus. All of it is being poured out on him. None of it is left for you. And it is redemptive, which means it's able to set you free from sin, set you free from the punishment of sin, set you free from slavery to sin, not just in one act like you're free from the punishment, but also in all of life to follow so that you don't have to keep following sin and obeying sin and doing what sin wants you to do. All of those things are teaching us about who Jesus is and why he and then we ask, uh, what does Jesus, uh, we're accessing it, um, Jesus' salvation. How do we get Jesus' work applied to us? So how do we get this? And what does Jesus' work do for us? Well, how do we get this work applied to us? What does it mean for us when it's applied to us? We teach that on the basis of the efficacy of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, which means it's working on our behalf. The believing sinner, so people who believe, are freed from the punishment, the penalty, the power, and one day the very presence of sin, and that he is declared righteous, given eternal life, and adopted into the family of God. So we get it by believing. That's the key word, believing in Jesus. And how do we know that what Jesus did for us is really going to work? That's a good question, right? How do we know that this is really actually going to work? I mean, this is a good story. Thanks, Lord. This is a nice story. It's a nice fairy tale. I'm a sinner. You came, became a human. You died for my sins. You're going to save me someday. Where's the proof? I'm going to put my whole life on the line to believe this. How do I know it's really going to happen? Well, we have the proof of the resurrection. We teach 
that in the literal physical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave, God vindicated Jesus' life and righteousness. What that means is by raising Jesus from the dead, God is putting his stamp of approval on Jesus' life, saying you did live a perfectly righteous life. He gave proof that he has accepted the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross, and he confirms our justification. Jesus' bodily resurrection is also the guarantee and the first fruits of the future resurrection life for all believers. In short, what that means is he raises Jesus from the dead so that you, when you hear Jesus say, if you believe in me, you will be saved, and one day you will be raised to new life in heaven, you can look at Jesus' resurrection and say, it works. He's really going to do it. God really can raise people from the dead. And then we also have the proof of the ascension when Jesus goes up to heaven. We teach that for a span of 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus Christ appeared bodily to many and then ascended bodily to the right hand of the Father where he now mediates as our advocate and our high priest. So not only did Jesus come back to life, Jesus is taken up into heaven and lots of people see it. And he's brought up to sit next to God at his throne, and he mediates for us. That means he sits before God, and he says, God, forgive their sin because of what I did for them. It's a mediatory role. He advocates for us. And then we also have the promise of Jesus' return. We teach that Jesus Christ will return to receive the church, which is his body, unto himself at the rapture, and returning with his church in glory will establish his millennial kingdom on earth, we teach that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one through whom God will judge all humankind. He'll judge believers, the living inhabitants of the earth at his glorious return, and unbelieving dead at the great white throne. And we list those out because that's what scripture teaches us. So, as we finish, let's use this as our final prayer. God became man so that he could die for you, so that you might live. Philippians 2 tells us, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that something is weird is happening. So let's just ignore this and listen. Okay. So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All this happened so that you would worship Jesus as Lord. Do you? That's the question. Is he the Lord of your life? Take that question with you into the main service as we ask the question, do we care about being holy? Is this something we actually care about because it's distinctly tied to whether or not Jesus is actually king in your life? Let's pray. Lord, we we thank you for this doctrinal statement. We thank you for your word, and we thank you that Jesus Christ, God eternal from eternity past, took on our weak and helpless flesh and lived a perfect life. In our, so that you might die in our place and take our punishment. And you ascended into heaven. You re- resurrected, showing that uh, it is working, that your death works for those who believe in you. And you ascended into heaven so that we might know that you are there advocating for us and that one day you will return to bring us home with you who call you Lord. Lord, help us to bring all of life under your lordship. In Jesus' name, amen.